I love Christmas. I love the preparations. I love the music. I love the, the lights, the other decorations, the smells, the tastes, the sounds, the just being with people you love. I, I, I love actually... Um, couple times each day, I'll kind of walk downstairs where our Christmas tree, we actually set it up, believe it or not, we set it up uh, last weekend, which has to be a world record for our household, uh, getting the thing up before Christmas Eve, actually. And uh, I just love walking down into the room where the Christmas tree is and just kind of smelling that. You know, I don't know if some of you probably think I'm weird, but I love the smell of, uh, of Christmas trees. And I love Christmas carols. I love the old ones. I love some of the newer songs, like the song that... Uh, that Daniel just sang. And it's really, I think, uh, one of my favorite times of the year. But what I love especially is just the month-long reminder of what God did for us 2,000 years ago uh, in sending his son uh, to be the savior of the world, to be the one who would rescue me uh, from my brokenness, from my, uh, my fallenness, from my sin, from my hurt, from my pain, from my guilt, uh, from my shame. And so I'm just excited for the opportunity to, to celebrate it, uh, really, for this entire month. But the problem is, for me at least, and I think it's probably true for a lot of you guys as well, just with all the busyness, it is so easy to get caught up in all that surrounds Christmas, and then we end up missing the whole point, the whole point of the holiday. And even... Even all the stuff, you know, I'm a pastor. I get paid to do this, you know, to do these things. But even in the midst of all that, even in the midst of, say, preparing a message for this morning, it's easy to lose sight of what was going on in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago and what that means uh, should be going on in my heart today. So this message this morning is really as much for me uh, as it is for you guys. And I want us to go back 2,000 years uh, this morning to Bethlehem and, and just look at some of the preparations that Joseph and Mary were making for the birth of their son and see what God was doing during that time and how he worked in their lives and then kind of apply that uh, to our lives today. So earlier this morning, uh, we lit the Bethlehem candle on our uh, Advent wreath uh, to remind ourselves of the preparations that Mary and Joseph were making for Jesus' birth. And if you think about Mary and Joseph and their background, they weren't really wealthy folks. So as they're Getting ready for Jesus' birth, they're probably registered, you know, at the local Target rather than going to Neiman Marcus, you know, and um, ultrasound was kind of in its infancy, so it wasn't terribly reliable at that point, so they actually had to have a couple of angels tell them that uh, their baby was going to be a boy, and so they knew as a result of those kind of angelic visitors that the swaddling clothes that they had to buy should be blue and rather than pink, you know, and this sort of thing, but seriously, they're doing all the same kinds of things that we would be doing as we're getting ready for a baby to come. You know, they wanted to make sure that uh, they would have food, that they'd have the right... They're, they're perfect. We could, you know, that's, that's exactly it. There's an amen there, you know, back in the back, in the back of the church there from that, that baby. You know, they wanted to make sure that, that their little baby's going to have food, that he's going to have clothing, that he's going to have shelter. You know, just like like the rest of us who are parents, they're getting ready uh, for the birth of their firstborn. But the problem was, towards the end of Mary's pregnancy, uh, they were interrupted by a Roman census. And I want to take a look at Luke chapter 2. Luke is one of the biographers of Jesus. We call them the gospel writers. And uh, Luke wrote the gospel of Luke, or a biography of Jesus from his point of view, 
And I want to take a look at what he has to say about this whole census and the preparation that Mary and Joseph were doing and the interruption that came with this census. So Luke writes, uh, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. So I want you to kind of put yourself in, uh, in Mary and Joseph's situation. You're Mary. You know, you're about nine months pregnant, not terribly comfortable situation, and uh, you get a notice that says, you got to go with your husband 90 miles away, which for us is not a big deal. It's, you know, like from here to what? Just, you know, just short of going to Philadelphia. But you got to go 90 miles away, and you're going to do it sort of on foot and on, uh, you know, donkey back, you know? And uh, it's going to take you about a week to get there, and you don't have all of the uh, amenities that we have these days along the way. So here she is. She's nine months pregnant. She's got to travel 90 miles on the back of a donkey with her husband. And uh, she, you know, they don't have any family in Bethlehem because if they did, they wouldn't have been trying to stay at an inn. They would have been staying with their family. They would have been staying with their friends. Uh, and as it turns out, they actually ended up spending at least a year there and maybe even two years in Bethlehem. So think of the situation. You're getting ready for your firstborn child, and you have to pick up and move your entire household while you're nine months pregnant. You've got to move them, you know, from their perspective. It's kind of like halfway across the country to this no-name rinky-dink town where you probably, if you're married, you've probably never been there before, and Joseph may not have been there either. You don't know anybody or anything about what's going on there, and yet you've got to do it because of the Roman census. Now, to us, <clears throat> excuse me, to us, a census is kind of like a mild annoyance uh, at best. You know, it, it, they, they send you the form and you fill it out. And if you don't turn it in in time, then they send somebody around to, to you know, get the information from you. And the whole point of a census for us is so that they've got the appropriate demographic data so that they can do proper, you know, representation in Congress and a whole bunch of other things. I remember when we were... Um, when Ann and I were living in Dallas. And uh, if I were cynical, I would say that the census is actually not so much to assure appropriate representation in Congress, but to assure that the representatives stay in Congress because they do this thing called gerrymandering, you know, where they kind of adjust the uh, voting districts to ensure that, they'll, you know, that the people that they want to get elected will get elected. Anyway, so we're living in Dallas, and uh, we're watching on the TV one night, and they're talking about gerrymandering. And they're talking about the most gerrymandered district in the whole United States. And it, was, it had a blob over here and then this 10-foot-wide strip of highway, you know, the grass. I guess technically, it was the grass along the highway. Nobody lived on it, but they, that's what they said. And then there's this blob over here, and I'm looking at it and it said, that's shaped like a dumbbell. And I think that's a good term for it, the way that they had gerrymandered. But anyway, we're looking at this thing, and I said, Ann, 
That's our district. That's where we live. You know, the most gerrymandered district in the whole United States. And that's a result of the census. Well, not really the result of the census. Anyway, from our perspective, a census is a bit of an annoyance, but from their perspective, it's the symbol of Roman oppression and domination. See, at that point in Israel's history, they are under the, they're under the domination of the Roman Empire. And the point of the census was so that they could collect taxes and, and register people for military service. Now, Joseph being a Jew who was occupied by the Romans, he wouldn't have had to register for military service because they didn't want foreigners in their, uh, in their military, but they had to go pay taxes. So essentially, you've got this decree by the occupying empire that says you got to go 90 miles away because they're supposed to go to their hometown, to their ancestral town uh, to be registered. You know, you've got to do this. And this is in the middle, actually, it's the end of her pregnancy. So what's a mild annoyance to us is an incredible inconvenience and problem and just, and just uh, outrage, in a sense, to them. And uh, the guy who decreed this census, uh, who was originally called Octavian, we know him more as, as Caesar Augustus, he viewed himself as, as kind of like a god. And uh, there's an inscription in a Roman temple that, that reads, in part, Divine Augustus Caesar son of a god, emperor of land and sea, the benefactor and savior of the whole world. I mean, if you're a Jew at that point, you want to vomit, you know, when you read this kind of thing here. But this is the guy who called for the census. Their lives, Mary and Joseph's lives, are totally disrupted just about when they're just about to have their firstborn child, and it's all due to some egomaniac who's occupying their land. And the question that we've got to ask ourselves is why in the world would God allow this to happen? I mean, did it take him by surprise? Was he like, oh man, I can't believe it. You know, it's, we're in trouble now because they're going to have to, I hope, they, I hope she doesn't miscarry or, you know, something like that along the way or, or, or what, you know? Was God taken by surprise in this or what? And the answer is actually found uh, in a promise, in a sign uh, that God gave 700 years earlier through a prophet, a Jewish prophet uh, named Micah. And in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, uh, God says, But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you're small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, that's for God, uh, one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And so God speaks through the prophet Micah to his people, to the nation of Israel, at a time in her history when they were just, it was just a horrible time in their history. Maybe 20, 25 years before the, this prophecy, uh, the northern two-thirds of the country had been wiped out by the Assyrians. And you're left with the southern third or so of the country, and it's being threatened by uh, the nation of Babylon, which we know today uh, as Iraq. And so it's being threatened by the Babylonians, and uh, really within 100 years or so, it's going to be destroyed as well. And uh, so in the middle of this crisis, God speaks to his people, and he, and he tells them that from this, this little rinky-dink, practically no-name town, he's going to send a ruler who's going to deliver his people uh, from 
the oppression that they were, that they were having. And, and if you think about Bethlehem, as, as Steve was saying earlier, you know, actually I raised my hand because I was born in a rink-eating town in Iowa. And uh, I don't take offense at Steve saying that, but I'll talk to him afterwards and he'll pick a different, different state for that. But if you think of Bethlehem, at the time of Jesus, it was only about 2,000 people. At the time of Mike, it was probably even smaller than that. It's really a no-name town. I mean, why, why not Jerusalem? You know, that's the big place. Bethlehem's a little suburb, maybe seven or eight miles outside of, uh, outside of Jerusalem. And uh, why did God choose such a tiny, uh, rinky-dink town f- to, to produce the ruler uh, who was going to deliver Israel from, uh, from foreign, foreign domination? Well, one of the key things is that Bethlehem was the hometown of the king who was probably the greatest king in Israel's history, King David. And 200 years earlier, God had promised to David. So this is 900 years or so uh, before Jesus was born. God had promised to David that one of David's descendants would always sit on the throne of Israel, that there would be this line coming from David that followed on with Solomon and the the kings that followed David. Uh, But it looked like the line was going to get wiped out. And so God promised and he said, there is going to be a king who is going to be a descendant of David, who's going to sit on the throne. And so Joseph, who was a descendant of David, had to go to his ancestral town. That doesn't mean he was born there, but it was sort of the foundation place of his clan, of his tribe, of his family, in a sense. So he had to go to his ancestral town in order to register for this Roman census. And his ancestral town happened to be Bethlehem, which was the city of David, which was the birthplace of David. And so by so doing, by having Joseph end up in Bethlehem, God is showing that Joseph's son, that Jesus, who's ultimately God's son, that Jesus is the legal heir to the throne of David because he's a descendant of David. He's the rightful heir to the throne. And if you think about it, there are some incredible ironies uh, in, in this story, uh, what's going on here. God used a Roman census to get a Jewish couple to move to where he wanted them to be. See, they lived up in Nazareth, and God wanted them to be born in Bethlehem. And it's not like God is sitting around up in heaven saying to the angels, oh man, okay, Mary and Joseph are up in, Bethlehem, up in Nazareth and we got to get them down to Bethlehem because there's this prophecy here and I'm going to look really bad if Jesus is born up in Nazareth. So we got to get them down to Bethlehem. What are we going to do? Any angels, you got any ideas? You know, one of, them, one of them says, hey, maybe there's a Roman census. No, God, you know, God had this whole thing planned out. He knew what he was doing. He's the God of the universe and he knew from the foundation of the world He planned it out, and he used a Roman census to get Jesus from Nazareth to Bethlehem so that he'd be born where he needed to be born in order to show that he was the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. From Mary and Joseph's perspective, the census is an interruption to their plans. But from God's perspective, it's the means he used to accomplish his plans. So it interrupts Mary and Joseph's plans but it accomplishes God's plans. The census is is a symbol of Roman domination and oppression, but God used it as a key part of his plan to bring freedom. So it's a symbol of oppression and domination, but God uses it to bring freedom. Caesar Augustus, 
was worshipped as a god. He fancied himself as a god. Yet the real god used this wannabe god in order to accomplish his purposes. Caesar had his purposes, but the real god had his purposes. And the real god used the fake god's plan in order to accomplish his plans. Augustus was a king who was called savior by his followers. But God used him to ensure that the real savior would be born in the right place so that he could be seen to be the real king over God's people and ultimately become their savior. And so just think about all those different ironies in the way that God used this interruption in the lives of Mary and Joseph to accomplish his purpose. And so as, you know, as I was thinking about this these last couple of weeks and taking a walk last night, just kind of praying about it, it's just amazing to see how God worked uh, in, in that way. As we said earlier uh, in the service, for, for most of us, December is probably the, the busiest time of the year. I mean, think about work. It's the end of the quarter, you know, and you got to finish off stuff for the end of the quarter. It's the end of the year, so it's the end of the fourth quarter. And so if you're in the financial industry, you know, it doesn't get any bigger than that, uh, than what's going on at the end of December. Uh, you've got uh, at home, you're going to have all the various activities. You've got parties, you've got concerts, you've got the kids' school activities, you've got uh, decorating, you've got presents to buy, all the different things that are going on. And all these things are good. And we ought to be making our plans and our preparations and and doing what we're doing. These are all good things. But if we're not careful, all these good things can distract us from the best thing, from just focusing on Bethlehem and focusing on Jesus and focusing on God's purposes and what God is is trying to do uh, this Christmas season. And I was thinking uh, yesterday how ironic it is uh, that we get impatient and frustrated and even angry when we're trying to buy gifts for our loved ones, you know? It's just, it's just not the way it ought to be. Or, or when we're decorating our house or we're getting ready to go to a, a Christmas concert or party. Come on, kids, get in the car, you know? And, and just like, is that what it's supposed to be about? No, obviously not. And so in that way, we can see how sometimes those good things uh, can really distract us from what God is trying to do this season. So as you're getting ready for Christmas, let me encourage you, do all that planning, do all that preparation, but don't get so wrapped up in your own preparations, in your own plans, in your own activities, that you're too busy to appreciate what God is really doing, what God is doing in our lives, and what he's doing in the lives of those around us. Ultimately, Christmas is about the gift that God gave us when he sent his son to rescue us, to save us from our brokenness and from our guilt and from our shame and from our sin and from our hurt and from our pain and from all that. And when he came to restore the broken relationship between us and himself. At the end of what must have been an unbelievably long day at the end of a long week, at the end of a long nine months. Mary's just kind of sitting there uh, in the stable. She's in, an, in, in a dirty stable 
in an unfamiliar town surrounded by a bunch of smelly animals and, and a group of shepherds. If you read the next section in, in Luke chapter two, you read about this group of shepherds who are so excited about her baby. She just wants to rest, you know, and, and they're so excited about her baby that they can't stop talking about him because they realize, because the angels have told him who he is. And so she's in the midst of this sort of smelly chaos in an unfamiliar town. And I love what the, what the gospel writer Luke says about her response to all that's going on. Luke chapter two, verse 19. But Mary treasured up all these things in her heart and she pondered them. She treasured up all these things and she pondered them in her heart. This Christmas, I, I wanna encourage you just as I'm encouraging and praying for myself that, that we would take time to do exactly what Mary did, to treasure up these things and ponder them in our hearts. Maybe you want to do that by uh, taking some time each day to read a portion of the accounts of Jesus' birth, and you'll find those uh, in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament. You'll also find it in Luke, which is the third book of the New Testament. And so just, you know, read a few verses or a paragraph or maybe read the whole thing uh, it won't take you very long. Read it every day between now and Christmas. Great way to just saturate yourself with what God was trying to do there. Uh, you could use the uh, Advent devotional entries that we've got on our blog. Again, Rich said it took him about a minute and a half uh, to read it this morning. Two, three, four minutes. If you're a slow reader, just take a little time. Read that through. Uh, ask yourself a couple of the questions that are listed there. Uh, pray about it. Those are great things, and they're, they're helpful to me. Another one that, that I love to do is... Uh, a little bit after it gets dark, I don't know, maybe eight, nine o'clock at night. Just love to take a walk around a, a block, a couple miles. Takes me about 45 minutes or so to do that. And uh, just pray. Just ask God to take all the stuff that's going on in my life and uh, kind of put it aside and help me to focus on what he's really trying to do during this season, to focus on the gift that he gave me of his son. I don't know what would be most helpful to you. Those are a few suggestions. Those are things that work for me. Uh, Maybe you've got some ideas. I'd love to hear them as to what's helpful to you in just focusing and, and pondering and chewing on and treasuring up in your heart all these things like Mary was doing. Whatever you do, ask God, as Daniel was singing, ask God to take you back to Bethlehem where God began his work of redemption, his work of restoration, his work of healing, his work of forgiving, his work of grace, uh, where he began that, uh, where our Savior was born. Ask him to help you to see the events that surround uh, Jesus' birth in a fresh way. Ask him to give you a renewed appreciation for the gift that he gave us 2,000 years ago at that first Christmas. Let me pray for us. Father, I love Christmas. I love the activity. I love the smells. I love the sounds. I love all the different opportunities that we have uh, getting ready for Christmas. But for me, and I know for probably just about everybody here, 
Um, all those good things can sometimes get in the way of what you're trying to do, get in the way of your purposes and get in the way of your plans. And Father, I ask that uh, we would make a conscious effort this year to do exactly what Mary did, to stop, to ponder, to treasure up these things in our hearts, to pray, uh, to see again uh, in a fresh light, or maybe for the first time for some of us, uh, what it was that you were doing 2,000 years ago. So Father, I pray uh, that you would take us back to Bethlehem where it all began, where your work of redemption and restoration began and make that uh, new and renewed and fresh in our hearts and in our minds. And as a result, Father, as we see the incredible love that you have for us in sending your son uh, to be our savior, I pray that our love for you would grow and that we would tell others about that and bring honor and glory to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.